Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 10, Stephanos Bibas, Designing Plea Bargaining from the Ground Up. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Stephanos Bibas. Stephanos is professor of law and criminology at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where he is the director of the Supreme Court Clinic. Among other things, Stephanos teaches criminal law, criminal law theory, and sentencing. His research focuses on the powers and incentives of actors in the criminal justice system, particularly in the plea bargaining context. His recent symposium contribution, Designing Plea Bargaining from the Ground Up, Accuracy and Fairness Without Trials as Backstops, was published in the William & Mary Law Review. In the article, Stephanos observes that the procedural and evidentiary protections found in our criminal justice system largely developed under an assumption of trials. He then insightfully asks whether those protections remain useful in promoting accuracy in an age of plea bargaining. Stephanos surveys the problem of accuracy in guilty pleas and then proposes some alternative safeguards. Stephanos, thanks a lot for agreeing to be on Excited Utterance. My pleasure. So let me begin with a great quote in the introduction of your article in which you say, lamenting the death of jury trials is a bit like complaining about the weather. So how tongue-in-cheek was this remark? Do you lament the death of jury trials? And do you really feel that there's nothing that we can do? Well, I'm not someone who thinks we need to have jury trials in 100% of cases, but having them in 4% of cases has lost a lot. When you have a trial rate of 25 or 30%, the prosecution and the police are kept in check. They know there's a realistic prospect and they're going to be forced to do some very meaningful vetting of their own cases or else they're going to waste a bunch of time and be embarrassed. But I lament the inaccuracy that's caused by just assuming that every case is going to result in a plea bargain, which means people can get sloppy and have some faith that most of it's going to be covered by a plea. I lament the loss of public view, the lack of transparency. I've written a lot about hiddenness, opacity, the lack of voice that the people have, as well as victims and defendants. And I think that there's a real both an actual unfairness and a perception of unfairness that comes when you have justice done by backroom deals and hushed conversations in courtroom hallways. I think we can do better in fact, and we can also do a better job of showing people that justice is done. But the system needs to, in some ways, move back from the myth of the courtroom drama. That's what we have out there in the shows. We have not a single justice on the Supreme Court who's willing to dynamite the plea bargaining edifice. And yet that's what non-lawyers assume the justice system is about until they actually get ensnared in a criminal case. I think that's the most important contribution in your paper. It's this basic insight that we have procedures and evidentiary rules in the criminal justice system that are designed to promote accuracy and fairness in trials, whereas what we really have is not a system of trials, but a system of pleas. But before I probe that, let me ask a more foundational question. 
why do we want greater accuracy in guilty pleas? So intuitively, it seems like an obvious goal. No one wants an innocent person going to prison. But on the other hand, there's something that makes linking a settlement or a bargain or a compromise with accuracy somewhat anomalous. After all, any compromise is never really accurate. So why do we care about accuracy here? I think that's one of the big differences between civil and criminal litigation. Civil litigation, you can model as a zero-sum trade-off, as furthering each side's interest in reducing transaction costs, each side having the best sense of what's best for it. From the private law paradigm, at least if the parties are pretty well informed and of equal bargaining power, they're going to do what's best for them. Now, the first problem is that doesn't transfer to criminal justice. Criminal justice is not a zero-sum game. There are big positive and negative externalities. People want to see justice done. They fear injustice. Justice shouldn't be bartered like a sack of potatoes. The private litigant's interest in the right settlement figure in a tort case just is not the same matter of public concern that it is in criminal justice. So that's the first thing. The second one is that these are issues of power in a democracy. They're issues of self-government as to whether the police are railroading people, as to whether the police are discriminating against minority communities. And again, it's not enough to say, well, each individual data point seemed fine. You can wind up with a blow up like that in Ferguson when there seems to be a systematic pattern of enforcement that people find unjust or biased or oppressive. Let me press a little bit on that. So I think you make a compelling argument that we should care about accuracy in the criminal context, even though we have a bargain. Should we really leave civil cases to the side in the way that you suggest? Or is there also a reason to worry about accuracy in settlements in the civil context as well? Well, that kind of goes back to Owen Fiss's famous argument in against settlement. And it depends on what kinds of civil cases you're focusing on. I think most civil cases look more like the car crash than the Brown versus Board of Education structural reform litigation, which Fiss was focusing on. But it is true that if you have patterns of discrimination, especially by a public agency, that that's something that you might want to limit. When you have patterns of misconduct that might be cloaked behind confidentiality agreements by large corporations or government entities, those start to verge on the same public justice concerns that I'm focused on in this article and in my work. And so there are these, they're civil, but you might even call them quasi-criminal because they're not just about private interest, they're about public justice. So you could generalize some of my arguments at least to those kinds of civil cases. But it certainly applies with full force and criminal. And in other work, I've written about how criminal cases have these Alford pleas and no contest pleas which on a private justice model make a lot of sense. The defense lawyer doesn't want to try this case with overwhelming evidence. The prosecution doesn't want to go through a show jury trial. The defendant, who is a child molester or a rapist or somebody else, is embarrassed, maybe even in denial to his family or to himself. And yet there's a public interest in making sure that the defendant confronts the guilt, which is a, a precondition to AA 12-step programs and rehab and to vindicating the victim who is grieving and needs some kind of catharsis and closure to start healing from the wound that she or he has suffered. So I think that it's all the stronger in criminal cases. 
And there are cases where there's actual factual inaccuracy. There are the other cases like the Alfred and no contest pleas, where I actually think most of them probably involve factually guilty defendants, but there were other values we serve by confronting the defendant with evidence of guilt, by the public seeing that there's an unequivocal condemnation, by the victim being vindicated in open court, that they get shortchanged because they don't have a cash value. To the prosecutor, to the defense lawyer, to the judge, a conviction is a conviction. It gets the case off their dockets, and those kinds of things get left out. And so the plea bargain makes sense to those I call the insiders in the criminal justice system from a private law perspective, but it has these corrosive effects as a matter of public law. I want to focus a little bit more back on accuracy before we get to the public policy or fairness implications of the plea system. Why are the current procedural or evidentiary safeguards insufficient in protecting accuracy? So why is the shadow of trial not sufficient here? You had mentioned how trial is very rare, and perhaps that's going to be part of your answer. But why are those procedures not enough? That's a very important issue here. The bargaining in the shadow of trial model works when you have roughly equally matched parties with good aggressive defense counsel and prosecution with a fair amount of information about the strength of each side's case, the evidence the other side is likely to be able to adduce, and the penalties that each can apply on the other are roughly comparable. Those assumptions don't hold here. And the one I want to focus on in particular is that of defense counsel. You have defense lawyers who are juggling hundreds of cases at a time, well in excess of ABA standards. In misdemeanors, sometimes it's thousands. You have them overworked, they're underpaid, and they're paid flat fees or only for a few hours of their time. If they're private counsel, if they're public defenders, they're paid a salary, but they don't have any support, investigators, forensic and scientific experts. Criminal discovery is terrible. And the perversity of it being terrible is the guilty defendants probably have a better idea of the evidence against them. The innocent defendants are the ones who are least likely to know what the evidence is that is misleading the prosecution into charging and prosecuting them. So there are a lot of ways in which we're bargaining in the dark. It's perverse when you think about it. Civil cases where it's mere dollars at stake, there's overwhelming amounts of discovery, too much. People want to rein it in. And yet the criminal case where the stakes are higher are where trial by surprise persists. And so there's a lot of guessing about the other side's case. If you are the sliver of white-collar corporate defendant, who can afford very good, very aggressive defense counsel, who do not have financial disincentives to take cases to trial, who can afford private investigators to interview the other side's witnesses, who can afford experts, who can go in early and negotiate with the prosecution, sometimes even before indictment. The model might sort of work, but that is a sliver of our criminal justice system. The overwhelming number of people are in this environment where the defense lawyers can't take many cases to trial and the prosecutors know it. And so the prosecutors can dictate terms in a lot of cases. Is there anything special about the plea bargaining context for this complaint, though? From what I hear you saying, the problem is that we have defense lawyers in the criminal justice system who are outmatched in terms of resources and time. That seems to be a problem that would be true if we had a trial-based system as well. So is there anything special about the fact that we've gone to pleas that makes this 
particularly problematic? It's a good question. This is a famous debate between Frank Easterbrook and Steve Schulhofer. And there are a couple of points here. The first one is, there are some things that a bad defense lawyer or bad prosecutor can cut corners on at trial too, no question. But there are certain kinds of lack of preparation, of police misconduct, etc., that will come to light at trial, that will serve a disciplining function. And when the penalties for going to trial are so overwhelming that hardly any rational defendant will go to trial, that it's really the extreme ill-informed reckless gamblers who are going to do that, then a lot of that kind of sloppy or biased police work, prosecutorial overzealousness will not come to light. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Dallas, there was a scandal involving dozens of defendants, mostly Mexican-Americans, who pleaded guilty to cocaine possession based on an informant and some baggies of white powder. Well, the 35th defendant pushed the case to trial, and it turned out all of these baggies involved powdered sheetrock. It's not until you get to trial that you can verify that someone has done the testing that there are, in fact, drugs involved. The other thing, and this is a point Josh Bowers at Virginia has made very powerfully, which is plea bargaining is run by lawyers. Lawyers are focused on administrative criteria. What administratively furthers convenience, what administratively clears the thresholds for their charging, they're not focused on normative and equitable questions. Historically, the grand jury and the petty jury are supposed to say, this is technically a violation, but this person doesn't really deserve a conviction. Or this person deserves a conviction, but we're going to cut it down to a misdemeanor because this person normatively is not the core kind of fraudster we were supposed to convict. And Bill Stuntz has pointed out it used to be a common law that the mens rea terms of wickedness or depraved heart in a lot of crimes focus the jury on those kinds of questions. But now we've basically cut the jury out and we've reworded a whole bunch of crimes in order to get rid of those subjective elements that could be pesky in plea bargaining. So instead of having to prove a specific intent to burgle, Stunts pointed out that the legislatures have reworded criminal statutes to just criminalize possession of burglars' tools so that the case basically can't be tried, is going to result in a plea. And the same thing is true of a lot of immigration crimes and a lot of drug possession crimes, etc. So the existence of plea bargaining has warped the substantive criminal code in ways designed to foster the plea bargaining in a way that it didn't 150 years ago. So how do we fix this? How do we improve the accuracy in plea bargains? Well, your colleague, Chris Slobogan, is one of a number of scholars who've praised the inquisitorial procedures of Europe. And my mentor, John Langbein, and others have made some powerful arguments for it. I don't view that as realistic to wholesale transplant to America. I mean, there's this literature in comparative law about legal transplants, and it's a pretty naive idea to think that you can just plop a German paper trial model on top of an Anglo-American cultural soil. What I do think, though, is there ought to be ways to blend some of these things. I don't think we can just wish that our prosecutors will become German-style prosecutors because the political incentives are for them to cup convictions, make their names. They can market it to become partners in law firm or get elected to be mayors and governors and others. But I do think that in addition to our existing police and prosecutors, we could have investigating magistrates. We could have judges asking more questions and probing the evidence, doing depositions, for example. 
I mean, one of the problems we have in America is that you don't get either side's story until trial, at which point either the person has died or disappeared, or it's been scripted by so many lawyers questioning that it's been spun, even unconsciously, but sometimes consciously, by the lawyers for each side. What if we took depositions of the parties early on? If you take a deposition under circumstances subject to cross-examination, even for Crawford Sixth Amendment purposes, the result of the deposition can be admissible at a later trial. And I care about that because it removes the incentive to tamper with witnesses. It also means you get the evidence in the can earlier, so there's no trial by ambush or surprise. The parties, if they're going to bargain, can bargain based on this factual record developed by this neutral magistrate with questions from both sides. And they have no incentive to threaten witnesses, bribe witnesses, intimidate them, etc. So I think a lot of this could be done as part of the pretrial process, superintended by some kind of neutral officials. The other thing I think is that I'm with Al Schuller in thinking we have it backwards. Our fear in plea bargaining has been that the judges are going to twist defendants' arms. And in fact, what we've done by shutting judges out of plea bargaining is we've created an imbalance. Our system depends on checks and balances. And the prosecutor has almost unilateral power in plea bargaining now with the enormous number of threats that prosecutors can use. If we allow judges to offer their views on plea proposals, to offer a, a counterweight or a second opinion to the prosecutor's offer, as long as there are some checks, as long as the defendant doesn't get punished for rejecting the judge's advice, the case would be reassigned to a different judge, then experienced judges' views about the merits of a plea, about the bargaining zone, etc., could work in criminal cases the way it works with magistrates trying to settle civil cases now. And I think with some appropriate checks, with making sure that there's not too much arm twisting, some kind of modest judicial participation would limit the ability of prosecutors to twist defendants' arms and provide them with better information than maybe their own defense lawyers who are of varying quality, often overworked, and may not have very much evidence. That takes us to your second part of the paper. Your, the subtitle of your article deals with accuracy and fairness without trials as backstops. And so in the closing minutes, let me try to shift from accuracy to fairness and to give you some opportunity to talk about how the plea-based system generates unfairness in addition to the inaccuracy and how we might improve upon that as well. In criminal procedure, we tend to focus on defendants and unfairness to defendants. And that is one important component of unfairness, but there are a couple of others that go overlooked. So to start with defendants themselves, I have long thought that the courts and a lot of scholars are crazy to model plea bargaining simply as contract law. One of the problems is that economists' model of contracting tends to presuppose fully informed rational actors. For purposes of modeling, that's an assumption that simplifies the model. But for purposes of public policy, I've never met a defendant who was a fully informed rational actor. Their information is terrible. They don't have very much discovery, especially the innocent or mentally ill, juvenile, intoxicated defendants, the ones we should care a whole lot about. I think we could give defense lawyers more of the tools that the prosecution has, you know, abilities to subpoena, some more ability to guarantee immunity or cooperation agreements with some judicial supervision, certainly more ability to hire forensic experts and scientific tests instead of just relying on the crime lab's tests. And so that means that prosecutors can bluff. And if they can bluff, who knows whether the defendant's going to be gulled by the bluff or not. That's going to depend on 
their risk aversion and timidity and experience with the criminal justice system and the defense lawyer's own spine. The other thing I would say about unfairness to defendants, it's not just information. There's a lack of understanding. A point that I've made repeatedly is that our Rule 11 plea colloquies are focused on exactly the wrong things. They're focused on a litany of trial rights that defendants are waiving that they never expect they're going to have. If we imagined not that trials were the norm and pleas were the exception, but that pleas were the norm, we wouldn't care so much about saying that someone's giving up his right to cross-examination or privilege against self-incrimination. These procedural rights are tangential to the substantive understanding a defendant needs, which is, what is my maximum sentence, which they're supposed to be told, but also What's my likely sentence for this case? What are the probabilities of conviction? What have other defendants in my shoes been sentenced to recently? So the substantive merits of the deal, the substantive defenses that are realistic, that sometimes work in these kinds of cases, are needed to give defendants a good idea. But defendants are victims of what's often called medium and pleadum lawyering. There are lots of defendants who plead guilty at the initial appearance. And for the most minor misdemeanors, I mean, public urination where the penalty is a fine, I get it. The cost of dragging this on for civil court hearings, the, the game isn't worth the candle. But for anything involving jail time, the idea that someone can show up and say, hi, I'm Stephanos Bebas, I'm your defense lawyer, here's the plea offer, I recommend you take it, before they've had a chance to have a conversation about the offense and the criminal record and the possibility of deportation or other collateral consequences is crazy. You get lots of defendants who plead guilty and then learn years later, oh, by the way, I'm going to be deported. Padilla starts to deal with that, but it hasn't dealt with the fact that the conviction might lead to a recidivist enhancement in the next case or loss of a job or loss of student aid. And if a defense lawyer has not had a single substantive conversation with his client, the client's hardly in a position to make a really understanding, informed choice about what is in his best interests overall. So let me ask you a final question, and it's the one that I ask pretty much everyone before we wrap up. Where do you see that further work needs to be done in this space? So presumably you are limited in length for your symposium piece. Do you have some additional ideas or concerns that you have left unsaid? I think the challenge is figuring out how we can give people a day in court and a role for procedural fairness and other lay intuitions of justice within the constraints of an overwhelmed criminal justice system. Getting there from here is a real challenge because we have a system run by a bunch of extremely hardworking and dedicated criminal justice professionals who assume this is the way it needs to be done. And I don't quite know how you get there from here. I think people working in a bureaucracy, they go native and they form to the expectations of the working group. And so when you look at the way new prosecutors and new defense lawyers acclimate, they come in all fired up and revved up about justice. And within a year or two years, they've kind of assumed that the system makes sense the way they are. And injecting fresh perspectives was the job of juries. And yet it's hard to see how you continually do that if you don't have juries or jury-like bodies that are continually being replenished. And so I'd love to see jury-type consultation in a lot of stages of criminal procedure, but figuring out how to retrofit that onto our system in practice is hard. And so the piece is a thought experiment, but developing that thought experiment into something closer to reality is a major challenge. Well, Stefanos, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think your article raises a lot of 
deep questions about what the ideal setup is in a plea bargaining regime, and I enjoyed the opportunity to grapple with them. My pleasure, Ed. Thanks very much. The thing I found most compelling about Stefanos's article is its basic insight, which is that our system of procedural and evidentiary protections evolved and developed within the context of trial. But that is no longer the system of criminal justice that we have. Trials are practically unicorns in today's legal system, and that raises the fundamental question whether we should rethink our evidentiary framework to promote accuracy in the system that we have in reality rather than our system in theory. Should we care about accuracy at all in a bargaining or compromise context? Stephanos makes strong arguments that we should, certainly in the criminal context, but also in some civil contexts. He also raises compelling arguments about transparency and disclosure that, if adopted, would also render accuracy important. In either case, I think Stephanos characterized his article best by describing it as a thought experiment. The article surely makes us think about critical issues, but implementing a solution will take a whole lot more time and work. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Nunn. Production assistance was provided by Carson Smith. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.